right, if you have a Bible, uh, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 15? If you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right. We do have red ones on the chairs. Feel free to use that. If you are going to use a red Bible, it's on page 538. If you don't have a Bible at home or need a new one, uh, take this one. This is our gift to you if you don't have a Bible at home. We want to make sure everyone's got access to the Word of God. All right, we're looking at Acts 15, and this is our second to last sermon in the book of Acts that we've been looking at really since we started in January. We've been following how the gospel has uh, been this catalyst, this, this uh, power for this movement of the early church. In the last several weeks, we've seen how this early church is going from city to city, preaching the gospel, uh, bringing healing to where there's hurting, and establishing churches, starting new churches in every city that the apostles and disciples went. And now last week, we looked at Acts 14. And at the very end of Acts 14, after Paul has established these churches, he goes back through and encourages the Christians. He strengthens their faith. And he says this. He says, it'll be through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of God. And he's warning them that there will be tribulations that will come as the church grows and as the community of faith increases. Now, we shouldn't be too scared that Paul warns about tribulations because Jesus also says that in this world we will face many tribulations, but to take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Now, when you hear the word tribulation, you might have in your mind this image of, uh, or this idea of like end times, uh, or maybe you think of um, persecution arising against the church. Now, both Paul and Jesus are talking about something immediate, so let's, let's forget the conversation about the end times. But when you think of tribulation, do you think of persecution against the church? Maybe. But let's not get scared about that. Because both in the early church as well as today, as persecution arises, the church explodes and it grows and it grows and grows. We shouldn't be scared or worried about persecution against the church because that actually will increase the church. I think what Paul is warning us about is actually something more serious than persecution. Something more serious. And in fact, Acts 15, I don't think coincidentally follows after this warning. Because it's in Acts 15 that we see an issue arise within the church. And this issue, it's a problem. And if this problem does not go unchecked, it has the potential to disrupt the entire mission of the church. The question in Acts 15 boils down to this. What must we do to be saved? What must we do to receive salvation. And the way that we answer that question has ramifications not only about our relationship with God, but also our relationship with one another. There is this problem facing the church in Acts 15. And if this problem doesn't go unchecked, it could disrupt the whole mission. And so today, as we read Acts 15, we're going to talk about the gospel for the church. Yeah, the gospel for the church. The gospel isn't just for those outside of the church. It is for you and me too. 
You know, other people have said that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, as if it were only for beginners. No, the gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It's all about the gospel. We never get beyond the truth of the gospel. And so today it is important that we remind ourselves of just that. And so if you want to take notes or follow along with where we're going, this is what we're going to do. As we read Acts 15, we're going to see the gospel threatened, the gospel clarified, and the gospel internalized. The gospel threatened, the gospel clarified, and the gospel internalized. Let's read Acts 15, verses 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with, the, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let me just finish with verse 30, which concludes the story. 
And so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Now we pray through your spirit that it would enlighten our minds and our hearts, that we would know your love for us more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Every once in a while, I have a strange dream. And I've shared this dream with Sarah, and she says she's had something similar. Maybe you've had a similar dream to this. And the dream goes like this. It's the week before graduation. And you're getting all prepared to walk across the stage and receive your diploma. You've got plans for what to do after graduation. Everything's lined up for you. But then you get an email or a call or you have to go to the principal's office or meet with your advisor and you realize or it comes to knowledge that you didn't pass a class or or you forgot to take an exam or you didn't turn in the paper or you were enrolled, this is a weird one, you were enrolled in a class that you never attended because you had forgotten you had enrolled in it. I've had many variations of this dream, but the same thing happens. It's found out that this thing that you were planning for, that you were celebrating, that you were excited for, it's immediately taken away. And, you know, you have that feeling where your heart sinks into your stomach. Maybe you've had a dream like that. Well, that sort of situation is taking place in Antioch. In Antioch, this city where there's a church which is growing, it's a Gentile predominant church. And and it's a multi-ethnic church, and it's a church-planting church, and from Antioch has spread the gospel throughout the world. But there are these guys that have come down, Jewish Christians, who are coming in, and they're telling news that probably made their hearts sink down into their stomach. Something was immediately taken away from them, because what these guys were teaching was like this. Yeah, you might have faith in Jesus, but did you know that you're you need to also be circumcised. And unless you're also circumcised, well, then you're not saved. You were so close, but there's still more that you got to do. That's what's happening in Antioch. The threat of the gospel, the threat to the gospel is this, this teaching that said, yeah, your faith in Jesus is all right, but that's not enough. You're not there yet. You also have to be circumcised. This is what's happening in verse 1 and in verse 5. These teachers have come in and said, you must be circumcised also in order to be saved. To put it another way, they're saying, hey, you have to have Jesus and something else in order for God to accept you. That, that's the threat of the gospel. That's the threat to this gospel going forward and changing people's lives. But you have to wonder, like, what what was this big deal about circumcision? Maybe you know, maybe you don't know, maybe you grew up in church and heard about this, maybe you didn't grow up in church, and you're like, what? Well, circumcision, in, in, in that time, circumcision was this sacrament that God had given to his people in the Old Testament. It was this sign, this mark on the body that identified the people of God as separate from the rest of the nations. It was this gift of God, this sign of this covenant 
that God had made with his people. And that word covenant just means this deeply intimate and binding relationship between God and his people where there were obligations of faithfulness. And if you've met those obligations, well, then God would bless you. But if you failed to meet those obligations, there were curses. And in this relationship, God gave them a sign to say, I belong to the covenant. I belong to the people of God. This circumcision, it it did three things, really. And, And it demonstrated that, yes, God's people were cut off from the rest of the world. But it also said that if I fail to fulfill the obligations of this covenant, if I am faithless, well, then God will cut me off from the blessings of the covenant. And finally, it also showed, it demonstrated, it pointed to the reality that what we really need is not circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 20 talks about the need to have our hearts circumcised. And it was this image of having a pure heart that embraced God from the heart, that that followed in faithfulness that didn't come from outward actions, but something from within. And so circumcision was this wonderful gift given to God's people to demonstrate God's covenant love to them. But this bloody sacrament that demonstrated God's grace, well, it was fulfilled in Jesus. Everything that the circumcision pointed to is actually fulfilled in Jesus. You know, when he died on the cross, it was bloody and it cut him off from the land of the living. In fact, in his death, he wasn't just cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off from the blessings of the Father. He he died as a substitute for you and I, so that even though we are faithless to God, Jesus was the one that experienced being cut off in our place. Jesus alone embraced the Father from a pure heart, fully and completely. And so circumcision is fulfilled in Jesus. But, In that fulfilling of the sacrament, he doesn't get rid of the sacrament. He just changes it to something new. He switches it and transfers it into a new sacrament, a new sign of the covenant, and that is baptism. Paul, in in Colossians chapter 2, actually makes this clear to us. He says that in Christ... We are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Paul is saying that baptism now, this sacrament, this sign of water washing us clean, That is now the new sign of the covenant that God has made with his people. Paul understood that baptism, the very thing that Jesus told his church to go and do, that is the new sign of the covenant. Baptism is this marker that identifies us with Jesus. It separates us from the rest of the world and points to the reality that what we desperately need is to have our hearts purified. 
So whereas circumcision in the Old Testament points forward to our need of a Savior who will circumcise our hearts, baptism enables us to look back to the sacrifice of Jesus and our union to him so that in baptism we are crucified with him and raised to new life. Baptism and circumcision are both the signs of God's covenant with his people. But now, because Jesus has already come, because he has already fulfilled what circumcision pointed to, we no longer have to do that. But in our baptism, we are marked with the same thing that circumcision marked the people of God in the Old Testament. And what's greater is in the Old Testament, circumcision was only offered to men who would convert into Judaism and to males born into the families of the Israelites. But now, in the expansion of the gospel to the whole world, baptism is offered both to men and women, boys and girls. It is expanding who can be part now of the covenant of God. But this was the threat. People were saying that, yes, your faith in Jesus is fine and dandy, but it's not enough. You have to add to your faith in Jesus circumcision. And and with circumcision, the whole law of Moses. That was what was being threatened by these teachings. So now we have to wonder, what is the gospel then? Like, how do we clarify the gospel? Well, that's what we see happen next. So in verse 6, we see that Paul and Barnabas, they travel up to Jerusalem. And there they they gather together with Peter and James and the other apostles. And they they pull together the elders of the churches in Jerusalem and the area. And, And representatives from all of the churches gather together to consider the matter. They gather to consider the question at hand. Now, this is beautiful because this is the first of many times throughout church history where God's people, the leaders of the churches, gather together representing God's people and deliberate matters of great importance. And so the Council of Nicaea, that's another one of these things. And all throughout the generations, the churches have gathered together to deliberate. In fact, the the Presbyterian Church in America, the church that Story Church is a member of, we are meeting as leaders of the churches at the end of June to gather together and to, to deliberate questions of significance like this. And so would you pray for the church, not just the PCA, but all churches that do gather together and deliberate matters of great importance, that the gospel would be clarified. Because we need that clarity. We need gospel clarity. Like, thankfully, uh, I grew up with good eyes. And every time I've ever had my eyes tested, I've got 20-20 vision. I'm very thankful for that. But my parents, who also grew up with good eyesight, now that they're older, they have glasses. And I think it's probably true that as I grow older, too, my eyesight will dwindle. And things will begin to be blurry, and I'll have to visit an optometrist. And receive glasses so I can see, but that's a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing that we have glasses to enable us to see clearly. And what's going on in Acts 15 is that there's this gospel blurriness taking place. And so they need to go and figure out, all right, what is the gospel? Let's clear it up. 
Let's be sure that we believe what we need to believe, that we're teaching what we need to teach. And so they have their vision checked. Maybe we need to have our vision checked. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, what do I believe about the gospel? When I say the word gospel, what comes to your mind? Or, or when I ask the question, what must we do to be saved? How do you answer that question? Perhaps some of you might answer like this. And growing up, when I you know, grew up identifying as a Christian, I answered it like this too. The gospel is that I try to live my life the way that God wants me to live. He, he taught it in the Bible. God's given us his word, and if we read his word, we'll learn how he wants us to live. He showed us how that he wants us to live. Like, if I try my hardest to live that way, that's what God wants from me. And look, let's just be honest. I'll try hard, but I'm going to fail. But come on, no one's perfect. Is that how you answer that question? How are we saved? Well, God showed us how to live, and I'm going to try my hardest to live that way. Is that what you think about the gospel? Do you see how that answer, it's exactly the same thing that these Christians from Judea were saying? Yeah, Jesus is fine, but what really matters at the end of the day is how you're living your life. Yeah, Jesus is great and all, but at the end of the day, what really matters, are you circumcised or not? It's the same thing. It's just translated over 2,000 years. It all boils down to this. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Look, Peter knew that that wasn't the gospel. He knew that that wasn't what he had heard from Jesus and what he was called to preach. And so he stands up in verse 11, sorry, verse 10, and he addresses the council and he says, why are you putting God to the test by placing this yoke on the neck of these Gentile disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And when Peter talks about Yoke, he's not talking about an egg, it's a different word. He's talking about this piece of wood that people would put on the shoulders of horses or donkeys or cows and then attach to that piece of wood a cart or whatever it is that they wanted pulled. It was this burden placed upon the backs of an animal so that they could carry something. And Peter is saying, when we tell Christians that they have to do this, that, or the other, We are placing on their back a burden that they cannot carry because we cannot carry it. He's saying, why are we asking them to follow the law of Moses? You and I can't follow the law of Moses. Our fathers couldn't follow the law of Moses. Like the law was given to God's people, not as a way of gaining their salvation, Nowhere in the Old Testament do we see God saying, here is the law, now follow it to a T, and if you follow it to the T, then I will save you. What we actually see is God saves his people out of Egypt. He calls them his own people. And now that they're already God's people, he says, and now here is the law. This is my revealed character. This is how I want you to live as my people. 
but it was never about following it to gain salvation. Peter is saying, why are you burdening them with something that you and I could never carry ourselves? Maybe that's what you've heard about the gospel. That, yeah, Jesus is fine, but what really matters is following the rules. Obeying the law. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you believe that today. Maybe you believe Jesus isn't enough to make you right with God. You need to do something more. Jesus plus something else. Maybe it is Jesus plus living the kind of life that your parents always envisioned for you. Maybe it is Jesus plus living the life that your Christian community expects of you. Maybe you you believe that it's Jesus plus this, this spiritual, emotional experience that you could look back on and say, it was in that moment I know I was saved because I, I was in tears. You know, there's whole denominations of Christianity that say that unless you have a second blessing of the Spirit, something more than what everyone gets when they trust in Jesus, unless you have that second ex- experience of something spiritual, well, maybe you're not saved. And so it's Jesus plus something else. I know a lot of people who think it's Jesus plus a certain way of thinking theologically. It's it's Jesus plus reading the right authors or listening to the right podcasts or following the right preachers or saying the right kinds of words. Jesus plus. Or maybe it's Jesus plus voting a certain way. Or, or Jesus plus wearing a certain, the right kind of clothing. Or, or Jesus plus using the right words or not using the wrong words. Or Jesus plus listening to the right kind of music. Or Jesus plus not seeing that kind of movie or TV show. What is it that you have grown up thinking or even now think? It's Jesus plus something. But Peter recognizes that that is wrong. And he says, Jesus plus something is nothing. But Jesus plus nothing, well, that's everything. Jesus plus something else, whatever it is, well, that's nothing. You're not going to get anything if it's Jesus plus something. But if it's Jesus alone, if it's Jesus plus nothing, it's all yours. Everything is yours. To say that it's Jesus plus something is to say that Jesus isn't enough. It's to say that when Jesus died on the cross, that it wasn't enough to save you. How arrogant of a statement is that? To say that when the Son of God died on the cross for you, that that wasn't enough for you? But when Jesus died, it was enough. Because he died as this substitute for you. Completely taking away from you the wrath that we deserve to receive. It's all absorbed in the death of Jesus. There's nothing left to pay. And he offered himself as this perfect, spotless sacrifice. So that God completely accepts us 
To say that Jesus is not enough is to belittle the death of Jesus. Friends, when Jesus died on the cross and because of our faith in him, his complete, perfect righteousness is credited to us. To believe anything less than that, it's to belittle what Jesus has done for you. I mean, it's like knowing that your bank account has this infinite amount of money and that you can use your card to pay for whatever you want, knowing that it's all paid for, but then to say, yeah, but here's this cash that I've been working for. Can I pay with that? Like, it's all ours. Jesus plus something is nothing, but Jesus plus nothing is everything. Peter understood the need to clarify the gospel. And so he stands up in verse 11 and says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It's by grace. It's all grace. And that word grace just means free gift. And just like at Christmas morning, when you wake up, you don't have to work for your presents. They are yours. So receive it by grace. Now, finally... We not only need to see the need to clarify the gospel, but we need to internalize the gospel. We need to let this gospel move from something that we believe is true with our head, that we learn about when we study scripture. We need to internalize that by bringing it down from our head to our heart and outward from our heart through our hands as we love one another and build this community of grace. So we need to internalize the gospel. So after Peter talks, James gets up, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And in verse 16, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, guys, I, I understand this is exactly what God has been showing us all along, that yes, the Gentiles will come in. They will be restored. They have the name of the Lord placed on them. And then in verse 19, he says, I'm going to, let's write a letter encouraging these Gentile disciples. Let's write a letter and say, you are welcome. You are accepted on the faith you have in Jesus. But now, in order to live together, Jews and Gentiles together, we're asking you, in the freedom that you have in the gospel, would you obey these four things? Would you submit yourself out of love for one another because of the gospel? And he says, don't eat strangled animals. Don't eat animals that still have their blood in them. Don't eat animals that have been sacrificed to idols. And don't engage in sexual immorality, which was popular in the pagan temple worship. Now, the point of that is not to put a burden on the Gentiles. We already talked about that. No, the purpose of this letter was so that both Jews and Gentiles could actually be in relationship with one another. Because James says, Moses is still talked about in every one of these cities. And so there are Jewish Christians who are remaining kosher, and they have these dietary restrictions. But in order for Jews and Gentiles to get together, we're asking Gentiles, in light of the gospel, would you refrain from doing these things? Because the point of this is not a doctrinal question. The point of this is, because of this doctrinal clarity, how does that now affect us together as God's people living together? Francis Schaeffer 
a pastor and theologian and an apologist, wrote this about the early church. He says, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church. This community which the world could see. And by the grace of God, therefore, the church today must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. This is what we exist for. Not just to to believe the right things, but to internalize those things and have it spread out through our hands in community with one another. What we believe about the gospel has to take root in our hearts and begin shaping how we live with one another because of the gospel. What Schaefer is saying is that the witnessing power that we have as a church come down to those two things. Is the gospel clear and are we a community that believes it together? Is the gospel clear, and are we a community that believes it together? And so we need to internalize the gospel. We need to let it sink down from our head to our hearts. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that the gospel cannot be beaten into our hearts enough. Yes, Though we learn it and understand it well, yet there is no one who takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with all of his heart. So frail a thing is our flesh and disobedient is our spirit. We have to beat it down again and again. Listen to it, hear it, preach it, share it, pray it again and again. And as we internalize this gospel, as we take hold of it ourselves and gather together, we become a church, a church of people who have similarly internalized the gospel, united by our common faith in Jesus. That is what we do. We are a church, a community of people who are internalizing the gospel for ourselves. We draw our identity and our life from Christ together regularly coming together in worship and on our homes, in the coffee shops or out on walks together. We grow together to strengthen our faith. That is what a church is. But it's more than just showing up and listening. Being part of a church is more than just showing up and having something in common. Look, on Sundays in the fall, you can go down to the Browns and sit on Sunday morning with thousands of people who agree with you, who know the songs with you, and you could leave unchanged, and you could go to the coffee shop and run into someone who was with you on Sunday, but you wouldn't even know that they existed. That's not a church. And look, there are churches in the Cleveland area that you can drive to instead of coming here where you can show up, sit down, and leave without actually connecting with anyone. Yeah, you're going to hear the gospel. Yeah, you're going to grow your faith and be strengthened. But if you're going to go to the coffee shop that week and accidentally run into someone who was there with you on Sunday, are you going to know who they are? Do you know what's going on in their life? Being part of a church is not just coming to listen and be strengthened in the gospel. To be part of a church is to link arm in arm with one another and say, 
Let us fight for the clarity of the gospel together and let us grow a community of the gospel together. That is what was so powerful about the early church. When questions arose, they got together and clarified the truth. But then they internalized that truth and said, I'm going to grow together. I'm going to bind myself together so that when the world sees us, they see something different. The only way we can do that, friends, is if we individually internalize the gospel and then collectively look to Jesus together. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. It's because in this communion meal, we commune not only with our Savior, but commune with one another. In this sacrament, this shows us the union we have with Jesus and with one another. The table is prepared. The meal is ready. We come as the church together to worship him. It is in the body of Jesus broken and his blood poured out when he was cut off from the world. Only in him do we have salvation. So the question at the end is, what must we do to be saved? Trust in Jesus. Come to Jesus. Jesus alone. If we try to add anything to this, if we try to add anything to faith in Jesus, we have nothing. But in this meal, we are reminded that Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is all we need. Jesus has done it for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. 